The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. Well, it's only a couple of weeks until Easter, and so what I'd like for us to do is to prepare. Uh, we're looking through the book of Isaiah, much like the New Testament writers did. Uh, many of the writers would... would uh, pick up images, pictures, verses, passages out of Isaiah and use those pictures uh, to express what the gospel is. And this is no exception. It's a profound passage. But I think for us to really get a feel for what this passage is all about, it prepares us for Easter like no other passage, to get an idea really of, of what it's doing. Uh, what I'd like for us to do is to step back in time, oh, three, four thousand years and go back to a worship service that Israel might experience, back to the tabernacle, back to a temple. And I think we would be very surprised at what we would observe in worship because we would see blood everywhere. We would see that the rocks are covered with blood, the stones are covered with blood, the altars are covered with blood. Everything is deep uh, red and blood-stained. And then if we were to listen, instead of hearing uh, the, the sound of pleasant music, what we would hear would be the gagging and the dying of a sheep as priests would split their throats and the gurgling sound as blood would pour out upon the altar. Uh, sheep were slain by the thousands. This went on day after day, week after week, uh, year after year. And when you would get to the Passover by the thousands they would die to the point where the blood would actually run into the Kidron Valley. And you think, why? Why? It's really, it's because God required it. We're told in Scripture that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And we know even from the New Testament, we, we've looked at this hundreds and hundreds of times, that the Bible clearly says that for all of us, all have sinned. We've all missed the mark. Uh, we're, we're not holy and righteous like God is. We've missed that mark. We're separated from God. And the wages, what we earn from missing the mark is death. And so what's going to happen? We've missed the mark. We've been created in the image of God to have fellowship with God. We've missed that mark. We've, we've separated ourselves from God. And we, now we find out that the only thing that can possibly get us together is if there is some atonement which can only come by way of blood. Leviticus 17 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And so he says that I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it's in the blood that makes atonement for life. Atonement so that we can be covered or you could say at one There can be at one between two estranged parties to bring them back together. Atoned by blood. Uh, so in the ancient days, when an individual found themselves guilty, they've missed the mark. Uh, they're not holy as God is holy. So blood has got to be used to atone, to cover. And so they were given very specific instructions for their worship. So in Leviticus chapter 4, for example, uh, th those very specific instructions are told that they must bring the, the guilty party, the sinner, had to bring a perfect animal without defect to the altar. 
and this perfect animal then would become the sin offering. The worshiper would then, in Leviticus 4.4, lay their hands upon the animal, the, the, the sinless animal, and uh, that was the transfer of guilt from the person to the animal itself. And then the last part of verse 4, the animal would be killed. And that is what would satisfy the justice of God. The blood then was taken in the next few verses, 5 to 7, poured or sprinkled upon uh, the horns of the altar, the foot of the altar, and before the, the curtain of the sanctuary. And you're going, are you kidding me? That was, was worship? You know, and, and you think maybe we have problems, the drums are a little too loud or something like that. And, and this was their worship? Um, and to understand that, to really put it in perspective, you've got to understand that the Old Testament from the very beginning was designed to be an incomplete book. Because throughout the entire Old Testament, you have these illusions, you have pictures. The Old Testament says you have shadows that are pointing to something that's coming, that that will satisfy this requirement for this incessant sacrifice of animal and the the pouring of blood. Um, These sacrifices never permanently took away or dealt with with the problem of a human being being separated from God. Never dealt with it. So here was the cycle. This is what happened. Now, you see if this happens to you. There is finally the victory. You you feel the victory. Your sin has been atoned for. You've been set free. But then all of a sudden, you do it again. And all of a sudden, you feel the guilt. The guilt. I blew it. And guilt goes to defeat, I'm undone. Defeat goes to despair, like Luther used to say, my sin, my sin, my sin. Until finally, the cycle was completed again by another offering, which would lead to victory. But Israel was under this constant cycle of guilt, defeat, despair. Guilt, defeat, despair. Have you ever sensed that in your Christian life? Now, this week and next week, God willing, in two weeks, I am going to give you the secret to the Christian life. I mean, this underscores what it means to live the Christian life and to view the Christian life. It is so critical for Easter within the next couple of weeks. But it will answer that question, what could ever put a stop to this disastrous cycle of guilt and defeat and despair? That's what Paul cries out in Romans chapter 7. You know, he says, a wretched man that I am, who could ever set me free from this bondage of death? So let me, before, before we look at Isaiah 53, I was listening to a podcast, Tim Keller, and he was talking about J. Grisham Mason. And he was, he's this incredible Presbyterian pastor. This, this is way back during the heyday of Princeton Theological Seminary where you had Charles Hodge, you had B.B. B. Warfield, and you had J. Grisham uh, Mason. And 
unbelievable scholars, well, Machen summarized very succinctly what is the difference between religion and the gospel. So I want us to look at this, and then I think we'll really understand Isaiah chapter 53. What's the difference between religion and the gospel? Religion, say the Old Testament says that the way we are justified, in other words, the way we get right with God is through works, through the the divine law and through ceremonial observances. That's religion. Or, as Machen would say, any religion, I mean, whether it be... uh, whether it be Judaism, whether it be Jehovah Witness, Mormonism, whether it be a terrorist who might try and put themselves under the banner of Islam, any religion, with the exception of Christianity, has this order. Belief, there's belief in the system, works, belief, works, or obedience, salvation. Every religion, with the exception of Christianity, those three words. Belief, obey, salvation. The gospel is radically different. The gospel says that you're justified, you're made right, not through obedience, not through the works of the law, ceremonial observances, but through the completed work of Jesus who died in our place on the cross and took upon himself Though the punishment merited by us, and then God defeats death and sin by raising Christ from the dead. We're then invited into newness of life, forgiveness of sins by repenting, by belief, trusting in him. So for us, the gospel isn't belief, obey, (laughs) and then salvation. For us, it's belief, salvation, belief, saved, obey. So obedience flows out of the new life we have in Jesus Christ. The order of the gospel is believe, saved, obey. So you don't do good works and do good, you don't love people You don't do good things for the poor. You don't help people across the street in order to be saved. It's the overflow of a life that has been changed. In other words, you're you're not trying to get kudos with God. You're not trying to get accredited with God by doing those things. But it's out of your adoration for God, for what he's done for you. You can't wait to love others. You can't wait to serve others. You can't wait to to bless others. There is a radical difference between the two. The order is the difference between heaven and hell. The Apostle Paul spends most of the epistles, if you want to know what the argument is through most of the epistles, it's the Apostle Paul trying to get the Jews to change the order. They're constantly trying to make it believe in Jesus Christ, keep part of the law, and then you'll be saved. And so Paul spends most of the epistles going, no, it's believe, saved, obey. So the whole book of Galatians is toward that argument right there. These two views in life, hopefully now, will help you understand why so many Christians struggle so much 
with guilt, defeat, despair. Guilt, defeat, despair. If you try and, if you try and live your life under the order of religion, that will be the cycle of your life. Guilt, defeat, despair. Guilt, defeat, despair. If you can break free of that cycle and get under the cycle of the gospel, believe saved works. Now there can be joy. There can be victory. There can be peace. There can be, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, etc. Sadly, in churches all around the world, you will have two people sitting right next to, other, to each other in the same worship service. Their lives externally look exactly the same. Both attend church. Both put something in the offering plate when the offering plate goes by. Both are in a community group. Both try and serve on some ministry team. But one is under the order of the gospel and one is under the order of religion. And they're radically different. So Jesus' vicarious substitution on the cross does three things for us as believers. Here they are. This is absolutely critical for you. What does Jesus' death on the cross do for us? This is what we'll see in Isaiah 53. It allows God to declare even sinning believers righteous, never to return to a previous separated from God state. That's one thing. Secondly, it satisfies God's justice so that we are no longer to blame. The third thing, it releases God's love so that not only does God unconditionally accept us, he also delights in our presence. He delights in our presence and we are then free, set free to love others, to bless others, uh, to, to give, to serve. And that breaks the cycle of guilt. It breaks the cycle of defeat. It breaks the cycle of despair. And it allows us to experience what victory in Jesus is all about. I remember first church. I, I've started three churches in my life. First church I ever started was this little country church. We had this little country and western gospel hymnal. I think every week we sang victory in Jesus. You know, and, and, but listen to the words of it. The, the words of victory in Jesus are the words of the gospel. You know, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me. He bought me. With his redeeming love, he loved me ere I knew him. And uh, with all my love is due him. Listen, he plunged me to victory beneath his cleansing flood. He plunged me to victory beneath his cleansing flood. That's the gospel. That him is the gospel. These incredible benefits, folks, are all predicted in Isaiah 53. And you think, how could people have missed the Messiah? Well, Isaiah, let me tell you Isaiah 53, 1 to 6. Here it is. What Isaiah is doing is not only pointing to something that's going to happen in the future, he is actually even predicting the response of Israel to the Messiah. 
And now in Isaiah 53, 1-6, he's predicting the confession of Israel as they look all the way back to missing the Redeemer, the Messiah. So this is the confession of the repentors who missed the Messiah, and Isaiah's prophesying about it all, all the way back at the very beginning. So here it is. These are the repenters, Israel, looking back, realizing they blew it, not wanting us to do the same thing. Who has believed that he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before us like a young plant, like, a, like the root, the Nazar, where we get Nazareth from, uh, root of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised. He was rejected by men, a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And listen to the repenters. And, and we esteemed him not. We missed. We totally missed it. And the, the, the truth is, people just don't see Jesus as being the answer to their problem. That's what he's saying. We didn't see Jesus being the answer to our problem. People today don't see Jesus being the answer to their problem. I mean, he walked around. There's nothing special about Jesus. There's no halo. There was no visible aura. He walked around in mud. He got dirty. He had the marks of humanity on him. The truth of the matter is Israel wanted more flash. People today want more flash. Look, I, I want a Messiah that's going to make me healthy. I want a Messiah that's going to make me wealthy. I want a Messiah that can give me a, a bigger car, a, a, a bigger house, a faster car, a fatter wallet, a healthier, fitter body. I want a GQ Jesus. I want a stud Jesus. I don't, I don't want somebody that I have to hide my face from. And that was Israel. Israel said, we made that mistake. We had our eyes on the total wrong thing. What, and, and what Israel's warning us is, don't make that mistake. Don't look at those external things because Jesus was absolutely perfect within. He was not only man, he was God. And this is coming from the group that looked for GQ Jesus, stud Jesus. And they confessed, look, we despised him, we rejected him, we didn't hold him in any honor. Don't make that same mistake. They're confessing that. Now they want to expose us to the solution to our dilemma. He said, don't make the same mistake, but you need to understand that this person that we missed was the vicarious Messiah. He was the one that would put away, put an end to this tyrannical cycle of guilt and defeat and despair. Surely he bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we... <laughs> Here we are, confessing, the re repentant Jews, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. We thought he, he was deserving getting what he got. But he, 
was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we're healed. I mean, they're finally realizing that that should have been me on the cross, not him. Yet we, we esteemed him smitten by God. In other words, he was getting his just due. That's how God works. If you're bad, bad things happen to you. If you're good, good things happen to you. That's the cycle of religion. Let me tell you, my favorite Peanuts comic strip, my favorite one of all time, saw it years ago. Uh, Linus is walking in and he's holding his finger and, and Lucy looks at Linus and Lucy said, what's the matter with you? Linus says, well, I've got a sliver in my finger. Aha! That means you're being punished. You're being punished for, for something. Linus, what have you done? He says, I haven't done anything wrong. Well, you have a sliver, don't you? If you have a sliver, that's a misfortune. If you have a misfortune, that means you've been bad. About this time, Linus' tongue is just sort of hanging out of his mouth. Charlie Brown comes into the scene, and he says, now, now wait a minute, does, and Lucy just interrupts. He says, Lina, uh, Charlie Brown, be quiet. This is a direct sign of punishment. Linus has done something very wrong. He now has to suffer his, for his misfortune. I know about these things. And she's going on, and then all of a sudden, Linus is sitting there, and he goes, It's out. It just popped out all by itself. And Lucy walks away so mad, and Linus says, thus endeth the theological lesson for the day. You know, but that's, that's exactly where the Jews were. There's this tit for tat. You work, you deserve. You work hard, you get a lot. You sin, you lose. God punishes. God takes. God scolds. You, you have a sliver. You have a misfortune. You did something bad. That is religion. Believe. Obey. Salvation. The gospel says, no. That's not right. He was pierced. Yet we thought he was stricken, but he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And those are all those words. Uh, Pierce and Doug Fern is going to be going, taking us on um, Good Friday through the cross, and we'll have communion. It's going to be an awesome night. But all these words point to the cross, being pierced with a sword in John 19, where blood and water comes out crushed. Uh, the depth, the intensity, the completeness of his suffering. Uh, punishment, chastisement brings us peace. Romans 5, we've been justified by faith, therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By his wounds we're healed. It's so interesting, the, the word there for, for wounds, by his wounds we're healed, it's really a singular Hebrew word. By his wound, this massive wound we get to have life. We get to be healed because of this massive wound. Habura is the word. You see, every person needs to come to the same place that these repentant Jews came to, realizing that Jesus died for them. He paid the price that set them free. 
so that there can be at one covering by the Lord Jesus Christ. And if mankind is to experience the same peace, the same relationship with God, the same freedom from guilt, the same unconditional acceptance, the same delight in the presence of God, then we too must have the same confession that these repentant Israelites, as predicted by Isaiah, have in verse 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Let me tell you literally what it's saying. All we, like sheep, are going astray. Ta'ah is the word. You know, and I, I've sort of been, I think we, we sort of can fall into the trap of being a little bit guilty when we try and explain what sin is. You know, we, we want people to, you know, to miss the mark and maybe we might say, well, have you ever told a lie? You know, versus telling the truth. Have you ever stolen something versus working for something? You know, we, we try and explain what it means to sin and therefore we need a savior. But, but the text here is so much stronger. He's saying, all we like sheep are ta'ah. We're all, and he uses this perfective aspect of the verb, the whole action, the, the whole thrust of, of the action in our being, our entire life path is misguided and misdirected. And this, is, this was the problem that, that Paul was dealing with the Jews. I mean, the Jews did some very good things. I mean, they were keeping the law, but it was, it was religion. It wasn't the gospel. It was, for them, it was belief. Obey salvation. Paul says, no. And all, even the good things are wrong. So that's where Isaiah is saying, all we like sheep are, are to ah. We're, we're headed in the entirely wrong direction. So I was thinking, how in the world can I explain that? So all of a sudden it hit me. Okay, track with me. You've seen the movie Titanic. Most of you weren't here when it happened. There are a few of us around that, no, I'm kidding. But um, you've seen the movie Titanic. So it would be, if you know the, the, the end result of the Titanic, and let's just say, for example, everybody, everybody goes down with the ship, okay? Just bear with me. Everybody goes down with the ship. So everybody's on the Titanic, and there's all kinds of things going out on. Now, we might say, oh, you're, you've sinned, you've missed the mark, and uh, oh, you cheated on that card deck. You know, while you're playing cards in the galley, you cheated, or you took food without asking for it, or, or, and other people did good things. You held the door for somebody going into their stateroom. But Isaiah's saying, no, everybody is on board the Titanic. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You're on your way down, down. Your, your whole life, whether it's good stuff or bad stuff, is hell-bent. You're pushing your way. A whole path of your life is misguided. That's the thrust of ta'ah. Okay? It doesn't decide, hmm, I think maybe I'll do this or do that. It's, it's, everything is going the wrong way. It's, it's Fra Frank Sinatra's song, I did it my way. You know, we tend to go, whoa, what's wrong with that, doing it my way? And the Bible says, eh, that's the whole problem is you're doing it your way. 
you know, that's, that's not the solution. That, that's the whole problem. Everything's going that direction. And, and that direction just ends up and, you, and you're being filled with guilt and defeat and despair. Your whole life goes that way. You need to be redeemed. And, that's, and the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of all of us. That's what happened at the cross right there. And the Lord laid on Jesus, the Lamb, the perfect Lamb of God, the iniquity, the fact that we're all, ta'ah, we're all going away from God, laid on Him the iniquity of everybody. Now, it's not to lay, it's not the word pagah, it's not to lay down, it's to strike down. The Lord struck down. It's a word used four different times by David of, of striking down an enemy. So let me give you an illustration real quick of what does it mean? What, how, what I would like for you to do to picture the, the cross. This is what happened at the cross. And I, I think if you view it this way for a minute, you will never ever struggle with wondering about your salvation again or wondering have you done enough to earn it again. What I'd like for you to do, what is this? It's a, okay, and what's the purpose of a magnifying glass for a six-year-old boy? It's to set stuff on fire, right? Yeah, it's, it's clearly, that's the purpose of a magnifying glass, set stuff on fire. You go outside, you get, when the sun is clear, you pile up leaves, paper, sticks, you set it on fire. That's the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is like a magnifying glass where God caused all the fires of divine judgment and retribution produced by universal human sin from every individual of every age, past, present, future, that ever was, ever is now, ever will be committed, and it is all focused all of the winds of God's holy anger, the th every thunderbolt of his divine wrath, all the outpouring of his judgment is focused on the perfect, spotless Lamb of God in a moment of time so that the Messiah himself cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. You've forsaken me. In a moment of time, and in that moment of time, God put the iniquity of the whole universe for all who would trust in him on the Savior all at once where he would cry out after God struck him down. Paka! Struck him down. It is only then when Jesus could say to Telestai, it's done. It's finished. Now, I want you to have that picture in your mind. That's what Jesus did. For all who would put their faith, for all who would believe in him. Remember, what is the gospel? Believe, saved, obey. Believe, saved. Let me tell you why it's not believe works anymore. If it were works, when you think of everything God did on the cross, all that sin pouring everything upon the Messiah, to think 
that I could possibly add anything to that. Any good work, any good thought to that. That is the most arrogant, prideful, dishonoring, unglorifying, disrespectful, ungrateful thing a human being could ever do for the greatest undeserved gift in the world. Does that make sense? It's believe, saved, and out of that adoration for the Savior of what he did for me, when I realized there's not an iota I could add to that, it's out of that incredible picture of love and un unwarranted acceptance that I am now unleashed in my adoration to love others, to serve others, to bless others, to give to be the husband God wants me to be, to be the father God wants me to be, to be an elder or a staff person or a neighbor God wants, to, to help the poor, to help those in need. But it's not to earn. How can I possibly add anything to that? It's the most prideful thing a human being could ever Folks, that is why, that's why the hymn writer wrote, you know, rock of ages, that was cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. You know, let the water and the blood from the riven side has flowed be the of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. That's the only thing that's going to stop this vicious circle of guilt and defeat and, and despair, thinking it's, it's me doing something. It sets me free. So what does it mean for me as a Christian? I'm going to wrap it up real quick. Three things. Number one. Get it? Here it is. What does it mean? Number one. It means I am set free from guilt because the order has been reversed. There is therefore now no condemnation. Parkview U, we went through the book of Romans. I think in the 25 years I've preached, I've never had more requests for my notes in one thing that I covered in Parkview U, and that was uh, Romans 8, 1 and 2. So next week, we're going to go through, what does this mean in terms of our sanctification? So I'm going to go in detail next. What is the application of all this in terms of our sanctification as believers? That's next week. Okay, we'll look at that next week. But I'm set free. No more fear. No more guilt. No more lack of hope. No more lack of meaning. Uh, I don't have to return for another sacrifice. There doesn't have to be more blood spilled. It's done. Secondly, I'm set free to love. There's no need to hang your head before God. Look, you've been declared righteous. You've been accepted. God actually delights in your presence. You're set free to love others. You're set free to serve others. You're set free to bless others. Your whole sense of adequacy and self-esteem doesn't come from others. 
how they view you, how they accept you, do they applaud you, do they think you're doing a good job. Uh, it comes from God who loves unconditionally and unmeritingly and sets you free. Thirdly, you're set free to obey. You're set free to obey. No longer striving, no longer earning, no longer seeking approval. That's what an accurate picture of what God did for us can do for you and for me. Obedience is never any longer a qualifier for acceptance. It is merely a response to our adoration. Let's all stand up. We'll close with a word of prayer. For those of you, if you've never taken that step of faith, believing, receiving, let me just give you this verse, John 1.12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you've never taken that step, please do. If you do today, tell me. Tell somebody. Uh, I'll be up here. Maybe a few elders will be up here if you want to talk to somebody about what that means. We would love for you not to walk out confused, uh, but to have that settled. God, thank you. This is an incredible passage. And to think that you wrote this thousands of years ago, so pertinent, so life-changing. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. And so, Lord, uh, many of us by faith have received you. We believed in your name. And we are saved. And out of that position in Christ, we, we are set free. We are free indeed. We're relieved from that horrible cycle of guilt and defeat and despair. So, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for this powerful text. Thank you for these next couple weeks as we look forward to Easter, the celebration of the risen Savior, Jesus. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Parkview's mission is to love God, love others, and serve the world. If you live in the Iowa City area, we invite you to join us in person for services every weekend. You can get service times and directions, download messages, and get news and information about Parkview Church by visiting www.parkviewchurch.org. You can also contact us by phone at 319-354-5580 or write to us at Parkview Church, 15 Foster Road, Iowa City, Iowa, 52245.